what is something that you can kind of really change to say like we were only letting two people in the door now with just like a change in language oh now we have 15 people in the door hey Aichi. hey caesar How's it going? Good. Here we are again. Here we are again. And we found our guests in a pretty cool way this time. Yeah, that was so cool. That was cool. (laughs) We were at this, uh, folks, we were at this mixer for people who are basically doing stuff around civic engagement in the greater Boston metropolitan area. Ignite. Please join us if you're ever around during one of our next mixers. That's true. We've been organizing it with MAPC, the Metropolitan Area Planning Commission. And at this mixer, all of a sudden, these are like, Pulls me aside. He's like, we have to go talk to this person. And I was like, who is this person, Caesar? And why are you whispering? (laughs) And it turns out to be Monique Gibbons, who is currently an innovation specialist. The policy innovation specialist for mass housing. Unbelievable. Now, for you who don't know this, mass housing, you hear that name, you may think, oh, what is that? Big, you know, lots of housing all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's not mass that way. It's mass from <laughs> Massachusetts. And it's housing, yes, but they are actually not a producer of housing. They are basically a bank. Mm-hmm. They're a quasi-public institution mm-hmm. that basically funds, supports, and banks low-income housing and mixed-income uh, housing developments throughout the state of Massachusetts. So they're a big player in the financial uh, market of actually making housing possible and affordable in the state of Massachusetts. And we are so excited to have Monique Evans here with us today. Yeah, it's going to be great. Monique, it's really wonderful to have you here with us. Two weeks or so ago, we were at this event in Boston called Ignite, which was bringing together people who do different kinds of work around community building and public participation and civic engagement. And you were there. We met you. And after having a conversation, we said, we need to have you come on our show. (laughs) It was literally instant. We were like, I'm sorry, your title is what? Policy Innovation? Okay, all right. (laughs) And one of the reasons is because on our show, we've been paying a lot of attention to what people have been doing through actual practices on the ground to actually help build civic life, create community development, to you know, kind of, as we always sometimes say, stitch together this very complex public we have. And we know that people in different sectors of society have responsibilities for that. So, like, government has a responsibility, civil agencies. But this season, you know, we're really focused on this other issue about the other actors out there. And now, you work for who? So I work for Mass Housing, which is a public-private agency for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Okay, so you now you got to strict up. So it's neither public, it's neither private. It kind of lives in a lane by itself, right? <laughs> yes. So it functions as a bank. So they they do lending and bonding and all of that great stuff on Wall Street, but they're still held accountable by the Commonwealth. So members of the board are publicly appointed by the governor, and they still have to do reporting and held accountable by the legislature. Very interesting, very interesting. Wow, wow. And you do policy work for them? Yes. And what does that mean? So... It means a couple of different things. This role is very new to the agency. The policy innovation space is very new in general. But to kind of do a quick summation of the work that I do is really thinking of trends and 
prior practices and trends towards the future and thinking how is the agency meeting its current goals and how can it meet the new challenges coming forward from the market, from government, from demographic change, from all the different forces that are within the Commonwealth to address the housing needs. Well, I actually love this idea that actually there's innovation in policy. They didn't just call you a policy person. They said, no, we need someone to do some innovation in Mm -hmm. policy. Sounds like you might actually, uh, they may actually realize that there's something wrong with the policy process it is already. I think, I wouldn't say that there's something wrong with the policy process. It's about systems that are in place that makes policy change very difficult. So I really came into the policy innovation space two years ago with a fellowship at the Housing Innovation Lab for the city of Boston. And the Housing Innovation Lab uses a model developed by Mona, Mayor's Office of New Urban Mechanics, of kind of working as consultants for city agencies. Yeah, they're guests of ours. We, we They're our friends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of it is... There are people on the ground in city government or in government in general who are doing really great work. So you have developers, project managers working on housing development. You have the BTD folks. You have street cleaners who are doing the work that they need to do based on whatever the city charger says or whatever they're charged from the the executive or the legislature says. However, a lot of these folks don't have time or the capacity to think differently about their work. So there could be the street cleaner who has been doing the same job for 20 plus years and his goal is to look forward to retirement. But there are changes that happen in our streets. So there's changes in automobiles. Our cars are very different from 20 years ago. The way that we Bikers and, Bikers and ride all of these share, different, scooters. All of these different things. However, he still has to keep doing his job. So he doesn't really have the capacity to think, how am I going to do system-wide change to address all of these different changes in our streets? So policy innovative folks like myself, <laughs> who are kind of like a new emerging thinker within the industry, we're, we're looking at it from a higher level. So we want to make sure that this street keeper can street sweeper still able to do his job, but still be able to do it in a way that meets the needs that are happening, the changes that are happening right now and the changes to come. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. So could you maybe give an example of like, what's what does this look like? Like, what do you do actually? Do you kind of like follow you know, the guy who's working on the street around to kind of see what his job is like? Or do you do maybe more like desk research about how the actual process or system has changed? Like, could you walk us through what what innovating on a system really looks like? Sure. So I follow the model that I learned at the Housing Innovation Lab, which focuses on the three E's. So that's explore, experiment, and Oh, I always forget. <laughs> engage? Not no. en- well, engage is part of the explore Sp- side. Oh, explore, um, experiment, maybe execute. That'd be a good idea. And evaluate. Policy. Oh. <laughs> oh, so and you, evaluate. Never ha- you never have to do it. Explore, evaluation So the explore stage is the the biggest part of this pipeline, and that is the engagement. So it's a level of research, so understanding the work. Like, why do you need a street sweeper? What do they actually do? And how do they go about doing it? So understanding that sometimes that could be major, that could be like a case study dive into things. But first, before you even do that, you have to identify what the problem is. So we're not just innovating just for the sake of innovating. (laughs) You're thinking, what is the actual policy problem that you want to change? So once you identify that problem, you can think of 
the research that needs to go behind that, and then also the engagement. And the engagement process, especially within innovation, is very important because you're not just engaging one stakeholder, you're engaging multiple types of stakeholders. So you want to speak to the actual person who's doing it, the person who's affected, who's affected by this. So this is the neighborhood. These are the people in the community. You want to think about the you want to think about it from a budget side, so you may need to speak to the Treasury Department and think about what's the budget towards street sweeping and are there any changes around that. So engagement is very important. And then also thinking of once you identify the problem, you have an idea of what do you fix, you want to think about how do you fix it. So how do you develop a policy or program to do that? And then from there, you want to develop metrics, so to evaluate that. There are a lot of policies that 20, 30 years ago that seemed like really great ideas, but nobody really knew how to evaluate them. And this whole idea around data, that's a very new thing in the policy space because we just started collecting good data like 10 years ago. So being able to set good metrics behind your policies or your, your idea that you hope to explore even more. So once you have a framework in place, you can go into experimental stage. So working with cities is really difficult to just have roll out a system-wide policy change with no idea how that's going to really work. What are the externalities of that actual project? So a lot of it are in pilots. So you often hear now there's so many different policy pilots going on in the city. Um, there's a pilot with, for this particular neighborhood. And the purpose of that is really taking the scientific model of just saying we want to study a sample of the population and see how that really impacts the population or impacts that sample group. And then from there, once your experiment, your your pilot is finished, you want to evaluate it. Did you solve your problem? Did you meet your goals? What are, what are your metrics and your data says? And then if if it was if it worked really well, then you want to scale up. So, tell me one of those uh, pilots that you're working on now. One of the projects I'm working on now is really looking at home ownership and looking at the racial equity gap for home ownership within the Commonwealth and thinking what are steps that the different stakeholders in in home ownership within housing development can do to address this home ownership gap. So first we had to understand what caused this home ownership gap. So we know that this is generations of <laughs> of discriminatory practices in our policies as well as in our lending practices throughout the state within the country as well. And now trying to think of what are actual solutions that we can address in today's current policy framework and then what are things that we can push? So what can we kind of push to help move the needle a little bit more? So we know that we have certain policies in place and we can either put more funding towards them, we can elevate them more through marketing and all of those types of things. But what is something that you can kind of really, really change to say like, we were only letting two people in the door now, but just like a change in language or just a little change. Oh, now we have 15 people in the door. So really looking at how can we innovate within homeownership attainment. So you were saying earlier that your job, even though you're reporting to the Commonwealth and you're a public agency, that you are effectively serving like a, a lending agency as well. So since you guys have that sort of power of the purse, what does that look like in terms of like rethinking how lending could be less discriminatory or rethinking who gets in the door? Like how does, especially if there's no, I don't know if, it's possible to have metrics around the population that you're lending to to make sure it's more equitable. But you know, what would it look like to like? What does that 
I, I don't even know how to frame this question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What can you tell me more about how the lending agency part of this fits in? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So the Racial Equity Group is a interdisciplinary council that was is really being led by mass housing. So the strategies that are going to come from this council won't just be implemented by mass housing, but we're also looking at as a lender, what are the things that we can do? So one of the things, there are a lot of metrics. So there's this thing called Humda data, which HUD collects and looks at the racial demographics of lending from different mortgage originators. I'm sorry, what's a mortgage originator? (laughs) So mortgage originator is essentially the bank that tells the borrower that they're going to give them the loan. And then from there, they do all the financial underwriting. So they say, we're going to pre-approve you and then approve you for this mortgage at this rate and to buy this property. And then from there, it comes to a larger bank like Mass Housing, who then purchase it and then sells it and does all the financial aspects of that all. So the way of the HFA, which Mass Housing is, they have a lot of ability into meeting the folks who do not go to traditional banks. So a lot of first-time homebuyers cannot go to Bank of America, cannot go to Chase or to the low, those large banks because their loan products don't really meet their needs. They're more likely to be denied a mortgage at these large commercial banks. So Mass Housing works with a lot of community and small banks that understand the needs of their patrons and their borrowers and are have specific products to address their needs. So mass housing mortgages are low interest mortgages, low down payments, often come with down payment assistance and things of that nature. So they're more equitable in nature to be able to to serve a wider range of folks compared to more commercial banks who are not really looking at it from that lens. Okay, so I'm going to put you in an unfair position. I know it, but I hope that's okay. Uh, you know, because I, I really appreciate everything you're saying, what you're doing. But I'm also wondering, you are here in, in Massachusetts. Mass Housing considers the whole state, mm-hmm. but uh, you live in the Boston area. Mm-hmm. Is this a winning, winnable game? Some insight of where you sit? Do you think, well, with our policy stuff, we can do a little bit, but... Mm-hmm. And I'm not putting this on you because it's not your problem. I mean, I don't mean it's not your problem, but it's all of our problems who live here. Yeah. Right. But it's like sometimes, you know, how do you keep how do you keep hope alive for yourself? I grapple with that a lot, not even just within this job, even when I was in grad school. Like it was looking at before I even got really into this position of housing, just looking at grad school in general of the stuff that I studied in public administration, just saying, how can we really build an equitable system when the scales are so unbalanced? But in the framework of housing, I think we have to focus on the small wins sometimes. The way that the housing market is set up, it is a, housing is a commodity. So housing and land is a commodity. So it kind of goes, It doesn't really work well when you say housing is a human right, but then also housing is a good investment. (laughs) So, A little bit of a contradiction there? Right. It's a bit of a contradiction. So really trying to figure out what are the, how's a way to make that a little bit more fair for folks. So first-time homebuyers could be a number of things. First of all, one, the definition of first-time homebuyers is very broad. Because <laughs> to be a first-time homebuyer, you just couldn't have owned a property within three years. 
Oh, so you mean you could have owned one 10 years ago? Right. Lost. You could have had it foreclosed, lost it, and then now all of a sudden you need to purchase a home or something like that now. And now you're a first-time homebuyer. So it's home like first-again homebuyer. First-again homebuyer. <laughs> so there are a lot of, there's like these different policy definitions that kind of get in the way of sometimes of the mission. But to your point, it can be a winnable game I think it's looking at if you want a place or a people strategy. And that's something that we think a lot about when we think about housing. So are we helping individual people find sustainable, affordable housing, either for them to rent or to own? So there are strategies that directly affect them in that way. And then we look at it as the place strategy when we think of the metro region of Boston and just the scale of raising, of unaffordability of the metro region and the strategies that you use to address that. So I guess that goes to like that idea of problem definition and really understanding what the problem is and how do you want to address it. So as a quasi-public agency who's in this really interesting space, how do you see your responsibility to the public? And what I mean by that, particularly like when you're thinking of policies or you're going to make changes, The city, for example, has its regulations about mm-hmm. how it has to hold meetings and everything to make mm-hmm. decisions and stuff. And the state has its, and mm-hmm. some private actors have their. What is yours, and how do you, how does Mass Housing see its relationship with the public? So Mass Housing is a, it's a very interesting agency. So I should preface this by saying that I've only now been in my role for less than ninety days, so I'm still really learning a lot about the agency. That's okay. Um, <laughs> So one of the things that I've really noticed, especially in their lending, they try to be very forward-facing and very transparent. So they're really trying to think of the borrower in being held accountable. So really saying, like, we want you to see us as a great place to come and get a mortgage and to be able to purchase your first home and build equity for your family or build wealth for your family through home ownership. And then there's also the side on our rental lending side for the big rental development side of just saying like we want to be able to build invest in our communities to invest in the commonwealth to provide safe and sustainable affordable housing to folks so a lot of it is really thinking of the internal mission of the agency and how is it helping the actual people who live within massachusetts i guess part of why i was curious is I know that, you know, even in, in the structure of mass housing, you do, for particularly around your rental housing, and not just that, also I think in some of the places in which you, you're the lender to the developer, mm-hmm. you pay a lot of attention to community building inside of those yes. places, yes. right? You see that as, a, as an integral part of your role. Absolutely. Now, so as a bank, I'm going to call you a bank for this question, okay? Mm-hmm. As a financial institution, why do you bother? I'm learning more about this. <laughs> Sorry. So asset management is very important to banks. So you want to be able to protect your assets. Mm-hmm. So if your assets is building housing for people in the Commonwealth, you want to be able to, one, protect that assets and protect the people who live within your communities that you build. So the asset management on the side of the lender, like our customer service department, is amazing in keeping like keeping homeowners within their homes when they fall on hard times and really trying to think of ways to help them keep up with their mortgage, restructure their mortgage and do different types of things. Like the, just had a conversation with them, like their last, they they do everything they can to keep somebody from foreclosure, from being, 
taken out of their home and to lose this property. And then on the rental side, we have a very a very well-known community service department that provides services and trainings to folks that live within our rental developments. That all goes towards that asset management. You're protecting your portfolio. Because if you're a mortgage lender, having people foreclosing on their properties on a regular basis, that puts your your portfolio, your financial portfolio at risk. Having on the rental side, having rental developments that are high crime ridden, that are known for having lots of issues. People don't want to live there. You have high vacancy rates. People can't pay their mortgages on those rental properties because they're not they're not rented up. So I think people lose when we think about economic systems, I think people don't see how customers are so tied into the financial stability of your business. So I think mass housing's investments within the actual customers really keeps them in business because people, one, will trust mass housing, refer them to mass housing products and to properties and all of those great stuff. And then it also makes sure that we keep doing business within the Commonwealth. Wow. Somehow the idea of people as assets, I know that might sound like even a little perverse in the way that I just said it, but (laughs) even tying more than money, I guess is what I mean to say, tying more than money into the conversation around asset management is so incredible. I mean, if banks had even in the slightest resembled mass housing, I don't know that 2008 would have happened, right? I mean, like this is insane to think about, oh, we care about not just your money, but we care about the person who's actually giving, the person behind the money. And if we you know, focus on your success, then we inevitably have that guarantee of of funds coming in as well. So why not tie the two together and look out for you as a as a member of this community as opposed to just your your wallet or the land that you sit on? I mean, that's incredible to me. Like I I don't know. I I just it's shocked. Like how did mass housing come into this role? How how is it built to to serve this function? And why is it that so many other banks and lending institutions don't don't manage assets this way? Well, Mass Housing was created for this purpose. So Mass Housing was created to be a response to commercial banks that didn't see their borrowers as actual assets to the communities that they live in. So Mass Housing, through the work of the legislature, was established for this purpose of creating mortgage products for Massachusetts residents to really keep residents within the state. There's a self-preservation aspect of mass housing of other organizations like this of really one attracting residents to mass to Massachusetts and then keeping them in Massachusetts so they can be productive members of society so if you have a lender that is providing good mortgages you're more likely to stay in your house cuz you have a good mortgage and you have good schools within that community it's all a it's a direct investment within the community so that's how mass housing really thinks about it Wow. So there's this larger conversation then about like how housing and lending feeds into this greater sphere of like well-being, right? Like it's incredible to me how they've begun to envision the public as more than just a borrower, right? Or more than just a resident or a renter. They've instead begun to envision these people as like contributing back to the state of Massachusetts. And so what better way to actually create these contributing members than to allow them the opportunity to stay in this environment? Absolutely. That's the goal, the mission of the agency. Wow. Wow. 
<laughs> the system's understanding there has to be so strong, right? Like it's so rare for transportation agencies to think about their impact on housing or vice versa, right? Or for workforce and employment to think about their impact on housing and vice versa. And for mass housing to take up, again, it's like Caesar's question, why bother? <laughs> but for them to to bother enough to take on this greater role and and think about how the systems all play together is just I don't know. I know that I'm beating a dead horse here, but it's just so fascinating to me that this ex- actually exists. Well, it's not only that you're beating. I, I, I don't think you're beating a dead horse because I, I think even, you know, Monique, what you said is that, well, you know, uh, mass housing was chartered to do this kind of work. But being chartered to do something and actually being committed to do something mm-hmm. are really two different things, right? And there's a kind of real commitment. I think, in mass housing about how to do that and how to hold that, not only just on, its, as you said, on its mortgage products, but also what it's doing around, you know, the rental pieces and building community there. I actually know a little bit about something related to that. Okay. If you want the story, yes, you please. may have heard it. But uh, this is from some time ago in the 80s, actually, mm-hmm. uh, toward the end, of the end of the 80s, where their community program was together. It used to be called something else. I don't even remember what it was called. This is before mass housing was called mass housing. It used to be called something Uh, else also, too. But anyway, the story is really interesting because there was a a gentleman from South Boston. His name was Tony Flaherty. And uh, he would do all these trainings sometimes in kind of low-income housing or work with management companies about community building, what was going on. And he always had this, he had this thing he would do sometimes where he'd stand up in front of the room and he would put up a chart and he would list all these things and it would be like things that they found in the housing. It would be like high alcohol abuse, drugs, sexual assault. I can't remember what the other ones were. You know, urine in the hallway, da 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 And then he would ask people to guess where it was and they would always kind of name someplace in Dorchester or someplace like that. And he would say, no, actually, this is an elderly complex in South Boston. And the wake up for people is that we're not paying attention to these things. And one of the innovative things that they did, as I understand this from that story, is one of the innovative things Mass Housing did was actually create this kind of uh, relationship with its insurers where they said, look, we can work collaboratively together to actually build, put money into actually building the quality of life of people who live in our housing. And if we do that, then on the insurance end, you're going to have less, a lot less uh, claims coming in. So if we do this work, will you reduce our premiums by such as a vehicle for doing this, right? So in some sense, they use another financial mechanism Mm -hmm. to actually fund some of the things that they were trying to do. This is a story I heard from Tony a long time ago, but I may have gotten, you know, over the years, who knows, I may have gotten a bit of it wrong. But it was fascinating because also in that, what he would say that when, you know, he put that list up there and he'd say, why is this problem going on? And, you know, he would say, well, part of it is because management itself is living with the same problems. And if management has an alcohol problem, then it's not going to do anything about tenants having it. If it has this other kind of problem, it's going to turn a blind eye. So if we don't train up our management, right, and and serve them, and if they're having problems, help them be healthier, mm-hmm. there's no way they're going to support the community in being healthier. So this notion that it's a whole system and you have to pay attention to the well-being of everyone in the system in order for the system really to support everyone. That's 
amazing. So that 100% predates me. (laughs) (laughs) I know that. (laughs) That story, but to even know, like, the roots of that, to see that now in terms of our management training. So we still offer management trainings now Mm -hmm. at Mass Housing, and um, a lot of it, or training coming up, which I have on my calendar to attend, is on racial and ethnic competency. And being able to, as property managers, being under understand the the racial ethnic groups that live within their properties. And really, that goes back to being able to train these property managers to be able to meet the needs of the community even more. And Aisha, I just wanted to bring up something that you kind of touched on before on economic development and transportation. So before 10 years prior to this, five years prior to this, there were a lot of silos. There were a lot of housing was built, transportation was done, economic was done, and they kind of were done dispersely. Now, we're all in the same rooms. (laughs) We're all in the same rooms, and we're all talking to each other. We're all working towards solutions together because of that understanding that we all live within an ecosystem, and that if you want to have a good, thriving economic center, you need to make sure that people are able to afford where they live and that they can travel to where they need to work and play and to and to live. It's all in, I think the silos are really breaking down. And that's why I really like the space that I, I work in within my job because I'm often the person that goes to that meeting. So I'm also the person that, so in addition to working in mass housing, I'll probably be sent to a meeting with the Secretary of Economic and Housing Development, because he's thinking of this from a more holistic perspective. Or there could be a partnership with Mass Development on a project that they're doing, and they'll focus on the commercial side of things, and we'll focus on the housing side of things. And then MassDOT would also say, all right, if you need that new building and there's going to be this new store, let's fix the roads. And then the next thing you know, you have a new corridor that had this multi-level of investment. And if you think about it from more of an equity lens and to think about just to add to that, to add equity and to fair and, and justice to that, you can add different levels of affordability and think about affordable housing and cost and home ownership versus rental. Next thing you know, you really are moving towards building communities that the people have only dreamed of. Mm. And I think little by little, people are becoming aware of this and are trying to move to that direction. Two things you mentioned that I want to go back on and really actually really nice to hear. One is that, so you're doing this training for management, you're saying it's happening and they're actually doing uh, training around racial equity. And so many institutions in this day and age have like, like move to diversity. Mm-hmm. They're afraid to say racial equity, mm-hmm. you know, to actually name that as a thing that has to be dealt with. Right. Uh, so it's really refreshing to hear a quasi-public institution, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but an institution, you know, of the stature of mass housing, you know, being clear about that. The other thing is we started out this whole season saying, you know, there are other actors that are out there who are, part of actually building our new civic landscape. They are actually part of creating the spaces in which our new kind of complex public come together. And it seems like not only is that happening by the fact that, well, you have a lot of uh, rental income and you support people around mortgage, but you're actively engaged in, in making people who live in your properties across the state actually feel like they belong somewhere mm-hmm. and really around their own own well-being. And... For me, that's really 
a kind of fundamental part of, of building civic life. Because if people feel like, hey, I'm connected, I'm in a community with other people, then you're starting to actually lay, I think, a foundation mm-hmm. for them moving forward. No, I love that. I mean, there's like the sense of connected planning or policymaking on the back end leading to a more connected sort of civic environment and a greater sense of like connection within the community. And that sort of direct translation is just so evident to me when I hear, you know, Monique, what you were describing and the way that you guys have been working and the way that you've been part of rooms and conversations where there are people from mass development, mass dot, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, this is just like one of the most heartening places I feel like to, (laughs) to share with you guys is just thinking about how these quasi public agencies are directly shaping civic spaces. You know, one of the things also for me that's really exciting about this conversation, it's about actually the two of you, because I think what both of you are demonstrating, I know where Ayushi is going in her own career, where you're uh, going in your own career. Who, me? Oh. (laughs) What's that? Okay. (laughs) No, I I want to appreciate this for a moment, because basically, you know, our country is stuck in a lot of ways, and it's so it is so refreshing and for me really honoring to be, you know, with two women of color who are going to be stepping into the policy field and really actually shaping policy from really different perspectives. You know, when we started this conversation out, I just want you to realize that you started out naming that you do policy work and you didn't talk about big policies. You talked about someone who was sweeping the streets. Yeah. You know, if that's your frame, right? Mm-hmm. Start there, as we always say, from the margins, and then you think about how you build things out to really work from that perspective. And both of you, just being able to sit in this conversation, it's just like I'm, I'm looking down the future and saying, oh, yeah, we're going to be in better hands. <laughs> well, I can only hope. For me, I grew up in the margins. So I grew up in the Bronx. My mother was customer service rep in a local bank. My father was a jack of all trades. He drove, the ta- he drove a taxi sometimes. He was working in a, for a cable company sometimes. He was just... Every couple of years, my father had a different job. So, and I, for me, I, I could have high school me just thinking of high school because it's ten years now since I've graduated from high school. Crazy, and <laughs> applying for applying for colleges. I remember I had this guidance counselor. He was our college counselor, and my school was this very large school in, in in the Bronx, and it was kind of notorious for all of the wrong things. But we were a select group of honor students that. We were the ones that everybody kind of assumed that we would just go to college and all the resources got put into us. We were only like maybe a tenth of the school and kind of just left everything else to mm-hmm. students' devices. It's not a very enriching environment. But for him, I remember my only framework of life and stuff like that, of success and all of that stuff was teachers. Like teachers had always had such a big impact on my life. So I'm like, I, w- I just want to be a teacher because I want to help another student like myself to aspire for something bigger than just the life that I'd seen right there where I grew up in my neighborhood in the Bronx. And he was very much like, oh, well, don't waste your money going off away to college or something like that. Just go to CUNY, which is a city university of New York, which are really good institutions. However, it's just kind of like I, I wanted to see so much more. Like, I've always been very big. I was like, this city's not big enough for me type of <laughs> New York City's not big enough for you. Okay. <laughs> that type of attitude. But this is the thing. Like, I start from a bottom up because people often think about that for New York City. Like, how would you leave New York City? Everybody wants to go to New York City. It's like, 
that Manhattan life was very different from the life that I lived on the last stop of the two train in New York City. Like, can even really imagine how different those two things are. So for me, leaving New York City was like this thing I'm like to not be just what was within my view at that time, I had to leave the city. And when I think about policy, people often think about from just these big grandial ideas, but it really starts from just personal action. So much, so many things that happen in our life of policy development and how systems work is from people's personal choice. Very self, there's a lot of self-interest that goes into <laughs> the way our, our world is framed. So when you build policy from the down up, you really can affect more change from that reason. Because you're really thinking of, why did somebody walk down? Like, why did somebody turn this street that way? Why are they taking that route to get to work different from a different route? So it could be it's quicker, or it could just be they feel safer that way, moving that route. And for somebody who grew up in a community like me, that, that I grew up in, things like safety and just access and all those things are things that I've, there have always been barriers in my life. So when I think of policy questions, those are the things that come to my mind. Like, does this person have access? What are the barriers that they're going to need to get to that actual policy thing? Somebody who who's all, who's lived a very privileged life, who things come very easy to them, they may feel like, oh, this is a problem, this needs to change, but they're not, they've never really had barriers in their life. They can't build policy for that. So well said. That's incredible. I'm on like the verge of tears and my, oh, no, and my hair is raising because I know exactly <laughs> what you're just, I mean, I don't know, right? But having lived and worked in Manhattan, right? Not the end of the two train. I feel so deeply that like divide in the way that we get to know a place and we get to know a people and how that, that knowingness shapes the way that you can then create this sort of change or this sort of innovation is just so drastic, right? Policy is just code for people, mm-hmm. but it's often, it's it's just rare that we think of our work as people first, unfortunately. You know, when we go to these political science programs or go to public policy programs, that's just not, it's, it's almost never explicitly said. And so I just, I want to appreciate you and really, really thank you for saying it in that way and bringing it down to the very core of, what we're here to do. Monique, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. We certainly have enjoyed having you with us. (laughs) Thank you. This is awesome. (laughs) Well, I really enjoyed having Monique on the show. That was incredible. I thought it was so great to be able to just hear the, like, sort of, I don't know, details of how lending can be thought about, you know? I mean... 2008 is now more than a decade away, but it just feels like yesterday in terms of the amount of impact it still has. Yeah. And the way that lending went so wrong and became just a tool against a lot of people instead of a tool for people. And, you know, here we had this really cool, really heartening for me conversation around how capital formation can become community formation. Yeah, really. It's just really nice. And I just, you know, I love also the fact that in this large organization that has all this impact over the state, that they've said, you know, we need someone to do innovation and policy. Yeah. You know, that policy isn't just like one thing. A stagnant. It's a stagnant thing. Yeah. It needs its own innovation. Right. Given how the demands are changing, our industry is changing, what people are needing is changing. And to see that they're out there actually seeing, really clearly understanding 
you know, we're back to this thing again about what their lane is, mm-hmm. where they should be, what they should be doing, and also why building the strength of the public and their community is absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. Right? Those mm-hmm. two things aren't not related to each other. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of the most vivid examples of something being both transactional and relational at the same time, right. but realizing you can do both, but don't confuse Don't confuse both. Don't confuse yeah. them with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. And uh, in two weeks, uh, listen to us again when we will have Desiree and Candace from WBUR. Oh, WBUR is in the house next <laughs> two weeks. Okay. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> bye bye. We're a production of the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT with support from MIT's Office of Open Learning. Our sound is produced by Dave Lashansky. Our content by Julia Cubrera and Misael Galdamez. I'm Ayushi Roy. I'm Susan McDowell. And you can find us online at themove.mit.edu. And on our Medium site at medium.com forward slash themovemit, as well as our Twitter and Facebook. Thanks so much. Goodbye.